Some foods will always be in style. Come on and hit them with a classic, Richard. Once the hibernator doors have opened completely, take small children by the hand. Folks, directly in front of us is a group of white blood cells on their way to destroy the splinter. Podcasts are born, they possess a gift or two. One of these, the WDW Radio Show, is here to make your dreams and wishes come true. WDW Radio, your information station. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in once again to the WDW Radio Show. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 20 for the week of June 24th, 2007. News from Walt Disney World this week includes additional information about the computers at the Contemporary Resort, the queue for Soren, and a few other updates. The Walt Disney World Rumor Mill covers topics such as Disney Dollars, the Wonders of Life Pavilion, and more. Jeff Pepper and I take a trip aboard my Walt Disney World The Wayback Machine as we continue in our Epcot retrospective series celebrating Epcot's 25th anniversary. This week, we journey back to 1982 and take a detailed look and journey in and around Communicore. Tim Sampson joins me for another hidden treasure of Walt Disney World, and for this one, we're going to go back to Main Street, USA. I'll announce a new, interactive, and ongoing contest with the help of listener Eric Hollister that I think you're really going to enjoy and one that's going to benefit the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project. Be sure to stay to the very end of the show for your voicemails, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. And now, a WDW Radio Show News and Views Report, live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. This week's news and views from Walt Disney World segment starts off with more discussion and more details about the queue over at Soren, as the typically long wait lines may get a little bit easier to endure, because as a play test, Disney engineers and designers are installing interactive video technology, motion detectors, and other devices at the attractions so guests can actually be entertained while they make their way through the queue. These new games are going to feature leading-edge technologies that allow people to play together while interacting with videos shown on the large screens hanging on the wall in the Grand Hall area. An example of one of the games is that people are going to be able to race birds that are going to be flying across a, a grand landscape. Now, the new system should be up by mid-July, and they are going to actually use this kind of as a test area to see if they can implement this technology elsewhere in the park. I think this sounds really interesting and very, very exciting because it's going to be interactive not only with cast members behind the scenes, but interacting with your other guests in the queue. So I'm looking forward to seeing what comes up in mid-July. I have more details about the contemporary computers that I spoke about last week. And this comes from a uh, listener email from Animal Kingdom Guy who said, At the end of April, I stayed in the contemporary tower and had the computer with free internet access in my room. The computer was what I call an all-in-wonder. The CPU and monitor were one unit. 
Now, while the computer provided internet access, there was not the ability to store any data or utilize some websites that require plugins or helper programs. At the time of our stay, we had access to checking room charges, looking up information such as times, schedules, and making room service or housekeeping requests. However, there were no ADR, fast pass, or other rumored content. I had a personal laptop that I brought for business and was pleasantly surprised when I plugged it into the spare data port and received free internet access on this unit as well. Overall, I would recommend the Disney computer for concierge service, reading or answering emails via a web service such as Yahoo, but I would caution guests that require an actual full computer with all the freedom to load software, accept plugins, and have access to business or leisure software should bring a laptop. Final word, this is a great step forward, and again, that comes from Animal Kingdom Guy. Uh, Animal Kingdom Guy, thank you for sending that over. Um, it's, it's nice to hear from someone that has actually had um, access to it, and it's also very interesting to see that Disney has very wisely, obviously, restricted certain access and certain abilities that you can do on the computer. So yes, if you do need it for business, you still should definitely bring your laptop down. Big Brian from the Walt Disney World History and Postcards website at bigbrian-nc.com and host of the Mousing It Up podcast sent in this email about some news about the monorails. He said, I thought you might like to know that the monorail floor treatment replacements continue. Monorail black and red both already have the new floors with the lower jump seat area removed. I suspect that they did this because the lower portion of that panel was carpet covered as I saw on monorail pink, which was still in carpet as of Sunday. So as we can see, the changes that were being tested on, I think, monorail lime originally are starting to take place resort wide as black and red have the ready changes and we should be expect to see those on the rest of the fleet uh, for all 12 monorails, uh, probably coming in the next few weeks. Effective November 11, 2007, there's a character meal price increase over at Cinderella Castle. Now, breakfast is going to be $32.99 for adults, lunch is going to be $35.99, and dinner is $40.99. Now, holiday pricing that's going to be in effect from November 18th to the 24th and December 16th through January 5th is going to be even higher with breakfast prices at $36.99, lunch at $39.99, and dinner at $44.99. Even with these prices, I would still say at 6.58 a.m., exactly 180 days out before you want to make your reservations, start calling WDW Dine because this still is the hottest ticket in town. A couple of other updates of note is that Walt Disney World has extended the closure dates for Spaceship Earth. The new dates are now going to be from July 9th through November 13th, 2007, which makes me wonder if they're going to be doing any more enhancements or just extending the time for some other reason. But if you are planning on going down, uh, you should definitely take note of the extended times. And also, candlelight dinner packages are going to start booking at 7 a.m. on July 2nd. Epcot food and wine events are going to start booking at 7 a.m. on August 6th. And speaking of the candlelight processional, Disney has released this week the list of the celebrity narrators for this year's event. Now, if you don't know what it is, the Candlelight Processional and Masked Choir takes place during the holiday season in Epcot's America Gardens Theater and tells the traditional story of Christmas in both story and song. It was first presented in Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom with Rock Hudson as the guest narrator. Back in 1994, they moved the event over to the American Gardens Theater at Epcot's American Pavilion. During the holiday season, there's going to be more than 100 performances that are going to be led by a cast of these celebrity narrators and performed by nearly 400 singers and musicians. In what is one of Walt Disney World's finest holiday offerings, this free concert includes professional musicians from Central Florida, choir members dressed in gold from high school groups across the country, amateur vocalists, and cast members from all departments and areas throughout the Disney company. 
The singers in red and black, who kind of make up the base of this tree, are actually the nationally acclaimed Voices of Liberty that perform at the American Pavilion in Epcot. The centerpiece of the cast is a guest celebrity who narrates the story of the Nativity. This year's guest narrators include people like David Robinson, John O'Hurley, Dennis Franz, Felicia Rassad, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Neil Patrick Harris, Kirk Cameron, Edward James Olmos, Gary Sinise, and Marley Maitland. The show runs about 40 minutes long, and there's three showings daily from November 23rd through December 30th at 5, 6.45, and 8.15. There's also dinner packages that are going to go on sale, like I said, on July 2nd, which will offer you guaranteed seating. Otherwise, I would definitely suggest getting there early. Definitely make it a point, if you are down at that time, to be sure to go and see the Candlelight Processional. It is a wonderful, beautiful, and moving experience. And now, a trip to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill. This week's visit to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill is going to start off with a rumor sent in by listener Maureen Collins, who writes, Lou, I was told I was in the Disney store today, and the ever-reliable, very knowledgeable store manager told me that more than likely, this time next year, Disney dollars will be a thing of the past. He said with the implementation of gift cards, there's not a need for the paper money anymore. I was both shocked and saddened to hear this. Do you think Disney will follow through with the discontinuing the dollars? What will they do for their present value? Are you a self-proclaimed completist? Do you collect them? Should collectors start stocking up? And what do I think they would possibly be worth? Just curious. Love your show. Uh, Maureen, this is actually the first time I've heard about this. I can't seem to get any kind of confirmation from Disney, but I will try and find out more. I do know a lot of people like to collect them, not necessarily buy them and use them, although it is something great to give your kids when you go that they can use, um, you know, uh, when they go to the parks. But um, most people collect them, really not for monetary gain, just for, for fun, usually, maybe unless you are a completist. I don't think most have any sort of real, exceptionally high value, uh, except, you know, maybe some of the early ones on the first Disney dollars. I really can't estimate as to what a complete set's value might be above and beyond, you know, the face value of the cash. Now, if they do discontinue them, that's when I would expect the prices will likely increase. Uh, and of course, like I said, I'll try and see if I can find out more. Also, Breathless 2 is rumored to be entered into the system at WDW Play sometime this week, although as of this recording, it has not. I tried to call the reservation system to confirm they said they were not booking for Breathless 2 at this time. From what I understand, drivers are still being trained, but once it does make it in, they're going to begin taking Illumination Cruises uh, reservations for 90 days out, which would put us mid-September somewhere. But I assume that once she's in the water for guests and obviously and in the system, it's safe to assume that she'll be available immediately for burst runs during the day and fireworks cruises at night. Now, I should mention that there are some rumors out there about Wonders of Life that have begun to swirl once again, although there have been no indications from Disney that anything might be happening. However, I did want to address them on the show. Rumors that have been sent to me speak of Disney doing uh, some major demolition to the building yet saving the Body War and Cranium Command attractions during that time. Now, if these rumors are true, again, what's being told to me is that the huge, beautiful mural over the Body War's entrance that's painted on the wall will be either removed or covered. Many people have also speculated that the space may be used for corporate events, much like the Odyssey Restaurant and the Millennium Village Pavilions currently are in Epcot. Now, I have spoken out on a couple of sites in response to this, as people are understandably upset about this possibility for a variety of reasons. However, I have to say that I do know from conversations with event staff at Walt Disney World, 
just how much revenue is derived from these corporate events. So venues that might otherwise have been updated or filled, like the Diamond Horseshoe uh, Saloon in the Magic Kingdom and the Odyssey Restaurant, remain in their current state, at least for the time being, partially due to the amazing amount of dollars that Disney's able to secure for these events in these spaces. Whether it's team training to team building, corporate parties, etc., many of these areas come at a premium and are booked months and months in advance. So to have another large arena for Disney to allow big-ticket events for these corporations doesn't really make necessarily bad business sense. Now, I, I am, while I'm the first to believe in the Disney magic and, of course, would want to see a pavilion and an attraction with a corporate sponsor there, we can't lose sight of the fact that this is a possibility because Disney is a huge corporation, and bottom line is it is driven by dollars and cents sometimes. You know, they do have a responsibility to it to answer to its shareholders, so if they can do something, at least for the time being, to make use of that space until another corporate sponsor comes on board, that very well may be a possibility because you got to remember these pavilions are very, very much corporate sponsor driven. Everything in, in Future World and World Showcase is, it always has been, and this is unfortunately the reality of the situation. But as I hear anything more, if something does come out, I will be sure to talk about it on the show. If you hear anything about either Wonders of Life or any of the rumors we talked about this week or any new rumors, by all means, please feel free to send them to me at lou at wdwradio.com. You can also call the voicemail at 206 Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. All of us at Epcot Center are glad to have you as our guests today. We welcome you and hope you find your day with us to be a most enjoyable one. Walt Disney was a dreamer and a doer, a man who cared about the world and its problems. He believed that people could develop solutions to problems if equipped with information, technology, and opportunity. Epcot Center has been created to showcase prototype concepts and technologies that may someday serve people everywhere. This is the essence of Epcot Center, a collective endeavor by people for people in the hope for a better world. From all of us of the Disney family, we hope you enjoy your stay in Epcot Center. And now we ask for your safety and those around you that you walk slowly and carefully to your first destination. Have a great day and welcome to the 21st century. As part of our continuing Epcot retrospective series celebrating Epcot's 25th anniversary, I wanted to welcome back Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. Jeff, as you know, has been a regular on the show, and we've been doing uh, our continuing series, kind of honoring Epcot in our own special way. Jeff, welcome back, buddy. Hey, good to be here, Lou. Thanks for having me. Jeff, uh, we're going to talk about not maybe, you know, what not people might think it would be next on our list of things to talk about over at Epcot. Um, you know, we all kind of know the story of how Epcot was originally going to be a city, and although that didn't happen as Walt originally intended, Epcot Center, as it was originally called, followed the idea of a city much more closely than you think. Um, and in fact, Spaceship Earth's 
Earth Station kind of post-show was really meant to act as Epcot Center's City Hall. And what we're going to talk about today is really what was Epcot's Main Street, and that was CommuniCore. And that was short for Community Core. And that kind of was made up of two buildings, CommuniCore East and West. And that, they were really designed to be the central hub or the main street of Epcot, as that's really where everybody had to kind of walk through to get to all the other pavilions. It opened with the park on October 1st, 1982. And uh, like I said, Jeff, they kind of followed that same model of the Magic Kingdom, where the two buildings really kind of surrounded the town square or, or the central plaza. We, we talk about, you know, we, we fondly reminisce about all these classic Epcot attractions. And it's funny because, you know, we, we'll, we'll go on and on about Horizons and, you know, World of Motion. And we rarely talk about Communicore. And the funny thing is, is when we do talk about it, or when you think about it, it has some of the best memories that I have of Epcot. It is, it was such a welcoming environment and it was such a unique environment, but you don't think about it so often because there just wasn't, you know, the big attractions necessarily associated with it. But when you really kind of get down to each and indiv- each of the individual components that were there, it was just, it was a really, really wonderful place, both east and west. And, and that's why I chose to do it next because I have very, very fond memories of going through as a kid. And what we're going to do, we're going to talk about the buildings and the architecture and the structures themselves, as well as some of the attractions and things you could see inside, because really, as part of this town square concept following Main Street USA, it really housed all of Future World's main dining establishments, much like you know a downtown district really would. But the buildings themselves were always very impressive to me, and it's very different from what you see today. Obviously, Communicore in its original state doesn't exist. It's now been changed over to Interventions. But the buildings themselves and the way they were kind of laid out was very, very different. And the thing I remember, Jeff, first and foremost, was how open and how bright um, both East and West were. It was, if I am using a correct term, expansive. It was, you, it was, everything was very open, like you said, very, very high ceilings. And very, probably the most distinct difference from Interventions was you saw the world around you. Um, the, they had very big, big, panoramic windows that looked out on the rest of Future World, so you had the sense of where you were. Um, a big difference with Interventions is you're so self-enclosed in, in the Interventions environment. You're, you don't see beyond where you're at, and the, the, the wide hallways and the benches and just so much of how the attractions were built into that just gave you this very, very open feel, but also just relaxed relaxing feel. Um, it was it was interesting because that was one of the things I've always liked about Epcot as a whole is even when it is probably at its most crowded, there were so many places within Epcot where you don't feel crowded and you can go and relax and chill. And Communicore really embodied that type of the more laid back kind of atmosphere of the park. Well, unlike Interventions Now, like you said, there was actually a, a large central corridor that ran through each of the buildings from end to end. And you kind of, you could enter and exit from a number of different points um, to the outside and to the breezeway to the other building. Actually, believe it or not, did you know there was actually supposed to be a Wedway people mover installed? The, the uh, Like you said, in addition to being um, as expansive as it was with the floor-to-ceiling windows, it was really kind of a two-level two building, and on that second level, there was supposed to be a people mover installed. That's why the corridors are so high, which were uh, going to be able to accommodate this track system. So like a, an Epcot TTA. An Epcot exactly. Which I would have, I mean, just imagine how great that would have been. That would have been being so, able to, you know, so go cool. around the yeah. central plaza. Yeah. 
But uh, inside, you know, uh, Communicore, there were it was filled with interactive exhibits and there were attractions and there were restaurants. Very, very different kind of than what you have now. But the design that they chose of the buildings was done for a number of reasons. One of which was the ability to build out from the existing structure. Um, as Disney wanted to add more floor space as time went on to the original 100,000 square foot building. So what they did, and we'll put a picture up in the show notes so you can see, and it mentions this two kind of semicircular uh, buildings uh, across from one another. And what it allowed them to do was really insert wedge-shaped pieces that could be attached to the outer rim of the buildings for new attractions, new restaurants, etc. So these big exterior glass walls that we talk about, they were also there not only to let light in and let you look out, but they weren't load-bearing, which means they could have been removed quite easily. They could have basically slid in this other wedge-shaped piece, however large or however long they wanted to. And if you look very, very closely uh, at the areas on the outside of the perimeter of Interventions now, you're going to see a, a great deal of empty space, and that was there just for that purposes, because the areas from the building, the end of the building to the monorail tracks were left open for that gradual expansion, which basically could have doubled the size of the buildings, which I think was just absolutely brilliant engineering and planning on Disney's part. And, and, and it's very interesting because um, you know, I'm sure you're going to touch on it at some point in our discussion. There were some very, very lost attractions that were um, intended for commuter core expansion that never did uh, see the light of day, that were never realized. Yeah, and, and we will touch on that a little bit more because it was one in particular that I was really looking forward to as a kid that never came to be. But maybe you, you may not have really realized this. Originally, the Odyssey Restaurant, which is kind of in this very odd location where it is now, that was originally meant to be part of the Communicore buildings. But there was actually a large sinkhole uh, kind of on the south corner that forced it to be relocated to where it is now. And actually, the sinkhole is still there. And it's kind of a little small lake. If you look in the southeast uh, corner of Interventions East, you can see where this little body of water is. And if you looked at the old concept art for um, Epcot before, before it opened, you'll see that the Odyssey restaurant was actually attached uh, to the buildings. Again, demonstrating that, that town square mentality, having all the restaurants in, in a central location for everybody to come and visit and, and hit at one time. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking at my pre-production artwork for that, and then <laughs> you have me so totally intrigued. <laughs> um, I learned speak, something new. <laughs> speaking of restaurants, the Sunrise Terrace restaurant, um, that was actually changed and expanded during construction. Actually, because of, of what was going on, they made that bigger. And the Centurium, which is now Mouse Gear, that was actually extended out back in 1987 during its refurb. Um, so it did change. The structure did change a little bit. They did add on a little bit, although not originally as intended. And maybe they will someday. Maybe they will actually be able to build out. But I, I don't. Uh, I don't think so. But the difference between the town square uh, concept in Epcot and Main Street's town square was that Communicore's buildings were surrounded by guest areas and attractions. Unlike Main Street, we have to really just walk through. You go through the retail district, and that's when it opens up to the park itself. So. Uh, Unlike Main Street, underneath all these buildings is a series of tunnels, almost like a simplified utilidor in the Magic Kingdom. And it actually connects the two buildings as well as some backstage areas, because obviously you're not going to have people bringing in supplies and food and things like that. So technically, I guess if you want to look at it this way, Epcot's future world, like the Magic Kingdom, can almost be described as being on the second floor as well, just like the Magic Kingdom. And, as, and if you look maybe in one of the overhead Google Maps, you'll see that there's a very large entry ramp right next to the Energy Pavilion. Uh, out, it's outside a guest view, but 
You'll see that's how they can get some of the larger trucks and things like down there. And in the, there's nothing really to see in these tunnels, and there's no tours. It, it's strictly off-limits to guests. But there's storage areas and break rooms and offices and things like that. Again, I'm educated. <laughs> uh, in the Now, you, I, I shouldn't say that all the areas, though, were, were off-limits. Because in the northeast area of the underground section, and I, I, they don't refer to them as Utilidor, so I won't, but they were the underground section of Epcot, were all the computers that ran Epcot Center. But instead of being hidden, they were really in plain sight as one of Communicore's, you know, highlight attractions. Um, you got to think back, Jeff, you know, 1982 when Epcot opens, computers were not a household commodity. They were very, very new, they were very expensive, and they were huge, not something that people were very familiar with. So they truly were a new technology that was being showcased, especially on a personal level and people's ability to use computers in a daily basis. But because they were so new, because they were so unknown, Disney and their corporate sponsors obviously made it a point to portray computers as being safe and friendly, entertaining, as useful. And that was demonstrated in one of the main Communicore attractions, which actually lets you look at the computer systems themselves. You actually saw the, the banks and rows of computers. It was showcased in the World Key information system. Um, they used robotics all around the parks through all the interactive kiosks. So computers were, were a very, very big part of what they were trying to showcase, uh, especially here in Communicore. As we walk around with our one gigabyte memory cards in our pocket, <laughs> right. there was, as you were saying, there are banks and banks and banks of you know, things that did the same exact function there. Yeah, I mean, and, and we'll try and put pictures up um, in the show, show notes as we talk more about what, you know, some of these computers, because they literally, they, they controlled everything in Epcot, but they filled a huge room. I mean, these, these were the kind of mainframe computers that things ran on on disk and things like that. And, and the concept probably of a of a one gigabyte storage card in your in your pocket or in your camera was so just unfathomable at that point. And the attraction we're speaking of is one that I unfortunately never experienced, but we're talking about at the beginning of Epcot was the Ruder Computer Show. A Studer computer, close enough. A Studer, Ruder computer. <laughs> Ruder, a Studer, same thing. Man, I'm showing myself here. <laughs> uh, see, I didn't experience it, so I don't, I don't have a strong memory of it. I, it. It evolved into backstage magic, which I remember very distinctly. Yeah, what we'll, what we'll do is as we talk about the... Um, each of the buildings. We'll talk about Communicore East and Communicore West individually, as well as the attraction. We'll talk about Communicore East first. But the one thing that should be noted about Communicore and on a general level, what was going on inside was that it was really meant to be a very interactive place for guests. And the corporate sponsorship was very important because the corporate, the companies wanted to allow guests after they visited the attraction, to have a second venue to interact with guests. And a perfect example of this was Exxon. They had no additional space in or around their pavilion. So what they really did was have another place that people can go and learn about energy and look, learn about what Exxon was doing uh, in Communicore outside the pavilion. And, and basically it was um, in very close proximity to where you'd be exiting out of uh, the Universe of Energy Pavilion. Yeah, I, that's, that's a good point you bring up because I was... Um in a discussion at one point with some folks online and they were basically discussing the fact that okay there's no pre-shows they were you know mission space doesn't have a pre-show you know such and such doesn't have a pre-show and they're sort of the second generation epcot tourists where there were i mean not the pre-shows i was speaking i'd be the post shows um the post-show areas or interactive areas like trans center you know um the big kodak area at um the image works etc you know they don't. They didn't have 
those they don't have anything to identify with those areas now and they were there as you said they were they were housed in in communicor and again at the time being the the geeky kid that i was i absolutely i loved it and again that's part of the reason why i chose it and let's kind of go through each of the 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 I want to say quadrants because when it really opened, they really were more so quadrants than they were mm-hmm. half buildings. Um, because even though the floor plans inside were very, very open, they were broken down into a number of very, very distinct and separate areas. So let's kind of start off on Communicore West first. And believe it or not, Jeff, people get confused a lot. If you're if you're walking into Future World and, and you walk under uh, Spaceship Earth, Future Communicore West is actually on your right side. You would think East would be on the right. West would be on the left. It's actually the opposite because um, because of, of the, the the placement of Epcot. So Communicore West was on the right-hand side, and we'll kind of take it section by section. And really the biggest part of Communicore West was Futurecom, and this was sponsored by Bell, later AT&T, again, tying right into the nearby attraction, which was Spaceship Earth. And this really was meant to be a continuing demonstration of all the communications technology from today to what they called Future Present. And to just clarify, real quick, for all our, as I just alluded to, second generation kind of listeners, we have been, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years, have been experiencing a post-show that comes out of, you know, the exit that is in the exit area of uh, Spaceship Earth. And in fact, that was Earth Station back in the early days, which was, like you had said before, a town hall. You know, it was more or less guest services. You made your reservations. So, in fact, the actual post-show for Spaceship Earth that was associated with, with Bell and AT&T was Futurecom, which was in Communicore West. Right. And it really, this was one of the things that I love because the, the things that you saw here, the technologies you saw here, are technologies that were so forward-thinking and technologies that we're seeing today. Uh, one of the things they had that was, was something they called an intelligent network map. And it was this giant map of the United States that showed the flow, basically, of information and communications across the U.S., kind of like a pre-internet, um, showing how quickly people could communicate. And guests could actually use touchscreen technology, and you're going to see this was used throughout Communicore. And uh, there were terminals called Ariel, A-R-I-E-L, which, which stood for Automatic Retrieval of Information Electronically. And it really gave people a way to kind of see what they were already considering was going to be the future of the internet. One of the other things I like that I know we talked about offline and uh, you see in a lot in the pictures is the fountain of information. And it was kind of this amalgamation of neon lights and, and things like that that looked like a giant fountain in the center of this future com area. And it really represented the ways that people receive information through a number of different mediums. It was a total stimulation overload. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that was the intention. It was to, to get that across of just, just, the overwhelming amount of media and then and then how it is communicated to us. And again, it, the fact of the matter is these things like this fountain was not something that you were just able to look at. You were able to interact and they had a game there called Packet and allowed guests to go up and uh, use this touchscreen technology to decode messages and they were distinguished by colors and it was really, it was demonstrating what is now modern packet switching. You had to kind of match these color squares up in order to kind of understand and figure out what this message was and Obviously, I guess that's why I became the, the geek that I am. But um, they had other things like the AT&T family phone, the Information Age Theater, um, which was right um, right near the, the Fountain of Information. This was this very large mural on the wall that represented communications through audio and visual uh, representations. 
And again, this too was tied into spa to Spaceship Earth. It was really about how communications have helped man throughout history and obviously going to help it out um, in the future. <laughs> so one of the, the biggest parts, and, and again, this was really where you saw the, the corporate tie um, that was done very well, though, was the World Key Information Center. Again, this was sponsored by AT&T, and there was actually AT&T representative help desks there to answer any questions that you had. They also had uh, a display of different types of AT&T phones. They had com personal computers there. Again, something, Jeff, that was, you know, unthinkable in, in 1982 that were kind of technically online. You actually could do things with them and, and interact with them. They had video conferencing technology uh, in an, an exhibit called Face to Face. There was basically a cast member on a TV who was sitting in front of a green screen who was on the second level right above you. Again, I said there was there were, there were two levels here, um, and there were backdrops that that they would you know um, they would chroma key in for making you think that you were talking to somebody from different parts of the globe. Again, just demonstrating the, the possibilities with the video conferencing technology. And it was that video conferencing technology that was, I, I'm assuming, is employed for the World Key um, kiosks. Right, right. That were in the, um, and they were actually throughout the park. Yeah, I mean, you, you used to be able to actually make dining reservations. Right. Mm -hmm. I, why we can't do it now, I don't know, but you were able to do it 25 years ago, so. <laughs> well, video conferencing, it's so passe now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was also a bunch of games there. There were things like Lost for Words, where you were actually guiding this electronic mouse through a maze using only your voice commands. It was able to recognize your voice commands, and you would tell it to go left, right. There was the uh, AT&T True Vision. There was Famous Faces, where you would they put a scrambled up uh, celebrity face on there. You'd unscramble it again, demonstrating the touchscreen technology. There was uh, Scramble Faces, where it would take a picture of your face and then scramble and unscramble it. Uh, tele Trivia, which talked about fiber optic technology. Electronic finger paint, uh, network control, where you actually kind of had to do line switching, uh, so you can cut, show how you can make con uh, phone call connections all across uh, the United States. Fraser, which was a uh, a voice synthesis technology, where you would type something into the computer, it would type it out, it would it would speak it out. I'm sorry, and uh, Chip Cruiser, which introduced people to the concept of computer viruses. You actually have to shoot these computer viruses before it made its way through a network in this kind of very early video game. But the thing I really liked was the prototype personal com computers. They even had predecessors of, of modern PDAs. I mean, so forward thinking back then, what you saw, it was fascinating, uh, I know, to me as a kid. Next, uh, going kind of up the uh, up the building was the Epcot Discovery Center that was later called Ask Epcot and the Epcot Outreach. There was also a teacher center adjacent to it. This was really, God, I wish they still had this. It was a research library, all about Epcot and all about Walt Disney World. Um, it was later moved to where the Art of Disney store is today, but you could really go in there, Jeff, and just ask them any kind of question about Epcot or anything about Walt Disney World, and they would either look it up and get you the information, or they would even send it to you at home. They would take your information and send it to you later on after they found it for you. Yeah, that Epcot outreach, which, outreach excuse me, was tremendous. Um, I always went there, even though I wasn't a teacher. They had the Teacher Resource Center. Um, it's where, when I was you know, really at my height of my geekdom back in the uh, late 80s, they had just great handouts there just about mm -hmm. the park itself, like fact sheets, you know, uh, you know, it's probably, you know, everything that's included in your volume one trivia, you know, they probably <laughs> had consolidated on, you know, and it was funny because, you know, it was, it was low tech in that, you know, it was like photocopied photostat sheets that they would hand you hand out. And it, it was it was a very once again, a very relaxing environment, but they actually had a research librarian and, and staff. Mm -hmm. 
on hand there that that really took this very very seriously. Oh yeah, and and like I said, you mentioned the the teacher center. Uh, you could go. Uh, I know when it moves over to the Art of Disney. You can kind of go upstairs to this if you were an educator, get admitted into this teacher center where they had a lot of these, these resource materials that you could get a hold of. And of course, you know, I would have loved to have seen that at the time, but uh, it, it's a shame that that's gone away. Yeah, it survived into the first uh, incarnation of Interventions, but then when they did the uh, the revamp to the uh, Road to Tomorrow, it, it did not survive, unfortunately. Yeah, I wouldn't even go there. I miss the original Communicore, in case you can't tell. So, <laughs> uh, in the next quadrant, again, because it was kind of a, a walkway that you had to go past, was the Sunrise Terrace Restaurant. That was in the, the southern quarter. And next to that was the Expo Robotics. Now, this was not open on opening day, but this really demonstrated, at the time, advanced robotics technology. They brought a lot of these these robotic arms in from Japan. They had things that would uh, that could spin tops. And I remember seeing the top spinning across a thin wire in between the two arms. They had one that would paint portraits of guests. It would do face recognition technology and spray paint images onto you know T-shirts and things like that for guests, which which was amazing. Yeah, I believe that that debuted in '88. Is because uh, I remember seeing that on one of my very first visits to Epcot. Yeah, and it didn't stay open very long either. It closed in October of ni- of '93. Uh, and, it, and we're going to talk later on why I closed because of what was supposed to take place uh, in this location. This was the thing that I really was, was looking forward to more than anything else. So, But uh, on the other side of the plaza was obviously Communicore East. Um, and this is where the Epcot Computer Central, which was both onstage and backstage areas, this was sponsored by Sperry Univac, who was very big. For those of you who may not know what Univacs were, they were very big in, in in computer technology back then, and this is where the Astuter Computer, Jeff's favorite show, played. Well, it's funny is that, you know, even, like I said, I never made it, I didn't make it to Epcot till 87, uh, so I was about five years late, and it's funny that I think myself and a lot of other people who are very much into the uh, music of the park, we have this very distinct <laughs> association with the song. <laughs> <laughs> And never having seen it actually performed, and uh, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you the pleasure of my wonderful rendition. But maybe you can, <laughs> right now, you could be, you know, as you, the the editing whiz that you are, you can be, you know, sinking it right into the background, even as we speak. <laughs> you see, my friends, the computer makes life easier, <laughs> saves me time and headaches too. <laughs> he sorts things out, analyzes in a shake. My enormous problem to him's a piece of cake. He's got a great big memory like an elephant. Utilizes knowledge without end. That's why I'm a router for me computer. Everybody needs a friend. When my work piles up and I'm seeing red Cause I need five arms and an extra head I find the computer becomes me troubleshooter He keeps miles and miles of facts on file My wish is his command Nothing is astuter than a computer when I need a helping hand. Let me explain. They keep on top of accommodations, record and update reservations. Well, it's funny that you say that it was a memorable song that I'm sure you, you know, don't think is the best song in the world because many people think, when you talk about songs like that, you think it's a small world. It's one of those songs you can't get out of your head. Well, it was written by the same people. It was written by the Sherman Brothers. 
Uh, and it was it was sung by Ken Jennings. And this was, again, in, the, in this Astuter Computer Review Show. It ran from opening day until January 2nd, 84. A little bit of trivia. This actually holds the distinction of being the first attraction to be removed from Epcot. Uh, because it did not do very, very well at all. But... It used uh, audio and video technology. It even used the Pepper's Ghost effect. That's kind of what you see in the ballroom scene of the Haunted Mansion. And the kind of storyline that went across was that what Ken Jennings was over in the Rosen Crown pub with his little monkey. Again, I, I'm not making this up how they tied this in. I have no idea. And they kind of beamed him over to, um, to Computer Central. And he kind of gave you a little demonstration of all the computer technology. And they showed you, the screen came down and they showed you these giant computers that were being used, these pioneer video disc players that uh, controlled all the touchscreens in Communicore and around the park, these large DEC VAX computers that controlled all the rides, all the shows, uh, and whatnot. You know, we in the Magic Kingdom, they have DAX, which is a digital animation control system. Here they had something called MAX, which was a monitoring and control system, and they had kind of had these micro VAX computers that ran everything basically was going on in Epcot and uh, they actually called these these computers Huey, Dewey and Louie and if you want a really great view and you want to see what I'm talking about other than just some, maybe some still photos you could find online rent the movie Daryl D-A-R-Y-L uh, they actually do a walkthrough in one scene and the, where they shot it was in this computer central so you can kind of get an idea of how big these giant uh, computers and players were and again I think what I had mentioned before it evolved into a slightly different show that was called Backstage Magic. Yeah, and Ken um, Ken didn't make the cut. Ken, sorry, Ken. But, thanks for playing Keep the Practice Jersey. Because, uh, he was replaced by cute, very cute Julie. Well, oh, so you had a little thing for Julie. Okay. Huh? It was cute. <laughs> it was little. Yeah, well, you can Julie. explain to people how, why she was so, so small. <laughs> Not small like loose small. We're talking small as in like, you know, 12-inch uh, small because what they did was instead of beaming Julie from her uh, her drunken festivities over at the Rose and Crown, they kind of shrunk her down and used uh, these video projection effects to have her kind of walk on top of the computer banks uh, while she was there. Hello again. In this part of the show, we're going to take you backstage to have a look behind the scenes at the computers working their magic in the 43 square miles of Walt Disney World. In fact, if you're one of the many who phoned ahead for a reservation with us, then you've already been in touch with one of our computers. This is CRO, our central reservation office. Here, thousands of requests for hotel accommodations and resort activities are received each day. She uh, she had a little sidekick who was known as Io, and you didn't really see Io. It's really more just like a uh, kind of a sparkle of light, and. She had a little more of a, of a serious tone to when they were talking, because they really talked about the history of computers and really showed how they were used in and around Walt Disney World. And the way you saw it was you kind of walked up to the second level, and then this giant black screen came down, and that showed all the room with the data banks. They actually had uh, an, an animatronic in there as well. They had Mr. Egg from Kitchen Cabaret showing uh, in there as well, and they kind of demonstrated how audio-animatronic figures were controlled by these giant computers uh, in the computer core. Yeah, it was, that was, like, again, I, I had not seen uh, the earlier, you know, version. But Backstage Magic, it was one of those things that I just remember not a lot of people paid attention to. Not a lot of, like, a lot of people kind of bypassed it for the, the larger scale attractions. And it was, I, I thought it was very, very cool. I, I really enjoyed it. I liked it as well. And maybe because of where it was, you had to kind of either take stairs or an escalator to get up to the second level 
people didn't realize uh, maybe that there was something else up there. But there were also games in and around the area as well. There was something. Okay, called... I get to talk about my favorite. <laughs> I know. You even. I know exactly where. You, what? I yeah. Go I ahead. Know. Which one was your favorite? I still, I still get to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and for for anybody that's not you know that's under the age of thirty, you're gonna go, God, what an idiot. But they had pewter game version of creating a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Is that where you thought I was going? I, I knew exactly okay. where you were going. The computer and, coaster. Yeah, there was that was the, the and you basically <laughs> put together a very basic you know coaster and then you rode it and you know years later Disney even created its own line of you know Disney coaster computer game software that you know was literally rooted in this very very basic game. But remember, this was you know mid to late eighties and it. It was the one of the most popular items in that area, and the technology. If you if you look at videos online of the technology that they used, it was really people's first introduction to CAD technology, computer aided drafting, um, and you can kind of ride it on this wireframe model. And to this day, it still looks good. I mean, it's still it, it, it's not you know it's no Cyberspace Mountain in downtown D in, in Disney Quest, but it's pretty darn good. That's where Cyberspace <laughs> Mountain was rooted. <laughs> Um, there was a couple other games. There was something called Get Set Jet, where you had to board guests on a plane, uh, again, using touchscreens. They had something called Putting It All Together, which was a quiz all about Epcot. And they had something called The Manufactory, where you had to assemble this U.S. flag on an assembly line, again, um, demonstrating that the touchscreen technology. But when Ken Jennings left, they brought somebody else in as well, and that was Smart One, SMRT. And you remember the little purple robot? He was the little purple guy that guessed your birthday and uh, asked all kinds of crazy questions. Yeah, he he was very very popular. Um, he was on this kind of pedestal, surrounded by all these telephones, and he would you know bark out trivia and he would you know guess games and and you could pick up the handsets and compete against others, uh, other people playing, other guests playing on the on the handset that surrounded where he was. Yes, he was a very eighties eighties robot, you know, all style and. And purple. Chrome. And, right. <laughs> <laughs> so next um, next in Communicore East was the Travel Port. And this was sponsored by American Express. And, and the, the first thing that I remembered when I was thinking about Travel Port, well, there was a giant 14-foot sphere showing all different destinations that you can go to. And that reminds me of the new, although much larger globe, at the current Spaceship Earth post-show. That's very true. That's I hadn't really thought of that, and you're absolutely right. Uh, there was really this was the place that you could uh, again use touchscreens to get virtual tours of other places around the globe and conveniently the American Express travel service desk was located close by you can get more detailed information from live hosts and hostesses make travel plans things like that this closed on April 27th though 1992 and obviously did not make the cut to uh, to the current interventions and and again American Express kind of severed ties ultimately with their sponsorships. Yeah, because they also co-sponsored the American Adventure with, with Coca-Cola, right. and now they no longer do. Which is and too bad, because Disney. do you remember the uh, do you remember the old American Express white glove packages they used to have? If you booked Yeah, vacation? very, very cool. Yeah, that I guess that's that all fell apart with the whole Disney Visa thing. Yeah, you used to, you got a you got a pin, and you got all kinds of different things. You got a, a, a fanny pack. No, I never wore mine, but, you know, you got all these, uh, you, these neat things when you book through American Express, so... Um, next is what I made reference to earlier before was the energy exchange. And this was sponsored by Exxon. And it might sound boring when we describe it, but it was actually very cool. They had different stations, uh, one for wind, solar, nuclear, oil and gas, um, synthetics, all these little kiosks 
that had touch screens and uh, as well as interactive kind of things, almost things that you would see if you remember the old um, Goofy About Health. They had things like pedal bikes and they had right. uh, a, a car driving simulator where you can see how wind resistance would affect your miles per gallon. Uh, and the in thing fact, I really, yeah. sorry, go ahead. yeah, I was gonna say is that you know so many I remember distinctly a lot of the things that you're mentioning here, like the pedal bikes and things like that were things that ultimately you would find in science centers or science museums, like your local, you know, you know, SciWorks or, you know, you know, science center that are popular, you know, in, in most cities. The thing I remember seeing was they had this very, very detailed um, miniature oil rig, you know, with all the lights on and things like that, representing what, you know, these, these giant oil rigs look like. Uh, and I just, again, for some reason as a kid, it, it made an impression on me. And then ultimately... uh moved over to Norway. Is it? Is that what they moved it to? Is no, I'm just kidding. Oh. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I should have let you go on that. Yeah, you didn't know about that, bud? <laughs> See, Lou doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> um, also on this uh, section or this kind of quadrant of Communicore East was a Stargate restaurant. This was located directly across from the Energy Exchange. But again, Jeff, we were talking earlier about how expansive and how wide open everything was. You can look across from sitting in the Stargate restaurant. You could look across the entire width of the building, you know, from floor to ceiling, you know, left and right to the windows outside. And you could see, you know, where Universe of Energy was and, and the future location of Horizons was. Yeah, that's it, it just established so wonderfully the scope and scale of the park itself. It's really a shame, you know, because... And again, we'll talk about Interventions in its current state now, but Interventions now is very dark and it's kind of, you know, a bit of a maze and it's just such, I mean, it almost looks like a completely different structure than what Communicore was. Yeah, it, that's that's what's the whole point is that of of so many places, you know, in Epcot, you still have a sense of, you know, how it was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But you, you really don't with Communicore. You can't walk through these areas and really even relate to what it was in that time frame. No, and even what we're going to talk about next, which is the first thing you hit in the southern quadrant, which is the Centurium, is still very different than what it is now, which is Mouse Gear. Uh, it was, you know, it was still at the time the largest merchandise shop in the parks. It was about 13,000 square feet. But unlike Mouse Gear, it was very wide open, very, very bright. It had two levels. It had a mezzanine level. There were, um, it was an elevator you could take up to the second floor. There was actually different kind of like sunken multiple levels on the ground floor. Very, like you said, very 80s, very chrome, very glass um, looking. Centurium is one of my favorite memories of Disney World. Um, you know, yeah, people are going, huh, it's a, it's a souvenir shop. <laughs> it was it was very cool because at that point in time, I was all about Epcot. I just, I loved everything and anything about Epcot. And so basically, that's where you got your souvenirs. And they really had, at, at, back at that time, they had an enormous amount of branded um, souvenirs and just not just clothes or, you know, you know, apparel, whatever. They had so much, you know, license plates, you know, glasses, watches. I mean, there was there was so much that was branded to the park. It was very, very distinct. And I, I, I loved it. And here's a little detail that, you know, of course, they're here's, you know, they're going to scream geek at the at their iPods. But do you remember the sign for Centurion? Yeah, that had all the little... It um, had all the icons yep. um, surrounding the Centurion logo. Um, and they were in very, like, little, you know, pentagon or octagons or whatever, you know, little kind of 
you know, the way the sign was designed. And it was just very, very much embodied the whole future world theme. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of representative of how everything was connected. You know, all these yeah. pavilions, everything was connected into this central area, which was Communicore. And, and we've definitely, and I think it's definitely lost focus on that. And, and we'll maybe touch on that later. Uh, the Centurium closed August 1999. Um, that was really the last original piece of Communicore that was left at the time. Mouse Gear took over that space. It also took over the space adjacent to it, which is what we're going to hit next, and that's the Electronic Forum and the Future Future Choice Theater. And a very, very fun part of Epcot that really kind of brings back what you were saying at the beginning, the interactive community kind of aspect, town hall kind of feel for the whole thing. Yeah, the the Electronic Forum, uh, also known as the Epcot Pole, was very interesting. It didn't open with the park. It opened a little bit later on December 23rd, 1982. And it was a theater. It was about 175 seats or so into this theater. And you watched a couple of short films about different current events. And after watching the clips, you can press one of five A through E buttons that were located on your seat armrests and take part in a poll. And they would, at the time, the thing that was pretty fascinating was the results were instantly tabulated. So you could see on the screen behind uh, the cast member, you could see exactly what it was. And they talked about things like, uh, what do you think about nuclear energy? What's our most important freedom? You know, real pressing things at the time. Um, but it was great. And, and it was very interactive. And, and the technology, again, of being able to instantly get the results was, was pretty cool. Yeah, and, and the um, playing to kind of the current events theme, the uh, pre-show area was filled with monitors. I think it had some interactive activities, but it had a lot of television monitors that were feeding in actual live newscasts, you know, um, just live media. And one very distinct memory I have of that is this would have been, I believe, September of 88, and I'm not sure of the name, but it was the very first shuttle launch following the Columbia disaster. Was it the Columbia was the first shuttle disaster? Sure. <laughs> okay, thanks, Lou. Thanks for all your help on yeah, that. One. You know, trying to, this is going to be like a really touching two handkerchief story, and forget it now. But no, it was it was the it was following you know that it was the first shuttle launch after that, and so it was very emotional. And we were at Epcot at the time, and what had happened was everybody you know that was at the park that day literally collected in that area because they were you know we were watching the um, CNN you know feeds leading up, and of course. You know, just at launch, we then all went running outside, and and saw you know saw the shuttle actually going up you know across the floor to sky, and it was it was very 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 moving. That, that was probably pretty cool. I, I actually was able to see my first shuttle launch ever last year during Mouse Fest. I saw they had a nighttime shuttle launch, and we we caught um, the night of the Mega Mouse meet. So it, you're right, I can I can totally appreciate what you mean by it being moving, and, and considering what it was at the time. Uh, it, it must have been even more so. But the place that you were talking about where you saw it was called the World Newsroom. And these monitors that you talk about had news feeds from all around the world. And it was actually one that just had Disney news on it. And the footage that these satellites um, were picking up came from these huge satellite dishes that were right outside the Electronic Forum. And I, I don't know if you remember, Jeff, before kind of Direct TV and Dish Network, you used to have these giant big satellite dishes, you know, these 12-foot yeah. satellite dishes on roof, and they would rotate. Remember the old SATCOM and Galaxy satellites? You used to have to right. actually, you know, manually tune them in, you know, from a little control. God, I'm definitely showing my age. Wow. Yeah, you're right, because it was literally, there was, it was almost like this satellite dish garden that sat behind the building there. Yeah, yep, and 
I'm going to quickly go off on a tangent. What I remember about early satellite technology, my dad was always an early adopter, so we had one of these satellite dishes, these monstrous things on our roof, was that when you picked up the feeds, you were picking up the live feed, so you'd see the newscaster kind of waiting to go on, and they'd be fixing their hair and adjusting their tie and checking their teeth and things like that. And <laughs> there were no commercials, and that's, you know, the, the good old days of satellite TV. But anyway, I, I went off. The final part of the Electronic Forum in this Future Choice Theater was something called the Person of the Century Poll that they launched back on January 14th, 1990. And the intention was you were able to cast your vote from 89 nominees that Disney had put in or you could even write in your own choice. Bad idea, and you'll find out why. Um, and, and vote on it. And it was supposed to run until January 1st, 2000, when Michael Eisner would announce the winner in a televised special. And, that, and different times throughout, some of the top nominees included Lucille Ball, uh, Winston Churchill, Marie Curie, Thomas Edison, Mikhail Gorbachev, Michael Jackson, Martin Luther King Jr., and Mother Teresa. Now, unfortunately, the poll was discontinued before 2000, and no final winner was ever nominated. You're probably saying, how come Walt Disney wasn't in one of the top nominees? He was actually not one of the nominees at all. They did not put him as one of the original nominees. But uh, the, the problem was, after a little bit more than a year, the uh, they, they took the machines out. And I have a full article about why this is. I'll put the link up in the show notes so you can I, I can explain why this never quite made it. But... There were a number of reasons, one of which was some, uh, some some cast members decided they thought it would be funny to kind of just pick this one cast member and just continually write his name in over and over and over again. And uh, so, so the, the poll results were a little skewed, and, and God only knows who might have won had the... Um, had they continued and they'd really just kind of rip these things out. I mean, they were there one day and, and gone the next. And like I said, I'll put the link up in the show notes. And the last thing over at the Electronic Forum... Jeff, you might remember seeing it. Was the, was the population clock? It kind of just right, displayed yeah. up. Yeah, and, and there were kind of these little wooden people kind of walking around it as it as it kind of ticked its way through, counting the uh, counting the, the the Earth's population. And just just jumping back to the uh, the person of the century, um, nobody wanted to talk about that for years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I remember distinctly going in, and the cast member was like, "Oh, I don't, I don't know anything about that." Yeah, it was like what you know, a year later. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, we don't know anything. It was like you know, a, you know, a White House press secretary. You're like, was, what sorry. person of the century? We can't, poll? We can't comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I don't remember any person of the century poll being. You must be mistaken, sir. <laughs> so, but let's talk about you know. Some of the things that were planned for Communicore that never made it, that never came to be, and some of them, I think, are, are, were unfortunate losses. And this, again, is was basically where those expansion areas you were talking about, correct? Well, one of them, the first one, the one that I really missed, was supposed to go in an existing area when it got removed um, and never never came to be. But some of them, yes, were, were meant to be in these areas that were going to be built out from the back of the, uh, of the buildings. Well, we have the Homestyles 2000, which uh, was a showcase kind of... You eventually saw some of this stuff uh, incorporated into interventions later on, uh, but it was more or less just demonstrating new home technologies, uh, new appliances, and it, uh, it's it even to this point you still have it's the home of the future that is in interventions, that this probably ultimately was what it, this idea evolved into. And really was a nice tie-in, again, like we said, to, to the pavilions, a tie-in to Horizons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had the space exhibit, um, which was not a full-blown space pavilion, but it was actually going to be um, a sort of interactive kind of area that focused primarily on the current uh, space program, which was centered on the space shuttle. 
it also, I think, was going to deal a little bit with um, the Hubble telescope as well. Right, and I, th- I guess this really was meant, at one point, not in Mission Space, it was planned to be a real, you know, full space pavilion that never came to be, and this is what it would have been tied directly into. Yeah, there was also the uh, Epcot Creative Center, and there wasn't really a lot of information about this. They, they said it was it's supposed to display student concepts from across the country, so the only thing I could really speculate, Jeff, is that it was maybe like a, uh, a showcase of... Um, something like science fair projects, maybe from students that maybe had different concepts for the future or technologies for the future. Yeah, and the next one of the next items, which was um, really a throwback to Disney '80s popular culture, was the Tron Arcade, which was kind of again, you know, this this evolved into some ideas that eventually took hold in interventions. But it was more or less a showcase for um, emerging, you know, uh, video game technology. Yeah, this was supposed to go where Expo Robotics uh, was at the time, and this is the thing that I was really looking forward to. Again, I was a, a child of the 80s. I was a huge, huge video game fan. I loved the movie Tron at the time. I know, you know, part of the reason probably why it was never built was that it was not as commercially successful as they had hoped, but... It was, a, it was a combination of a, a movie that I loved and being able to play video games and, and showcasing new technologies in video games, and it's a shame it never came to be. And I know you're saying, well, in Interventions now you have these video games exhibits, but I think it, it was meant to be something different. It was really not yeah. a place, not an arcade like it is now, but a place to showcase and, new technology in video games. Yeah, not so much sort of a commercial for, you know, Sega, right. as, as the Interventions thing eventually evolved into. And there was also the Audio Adventures Maze. Which, once again, not a lot of information, right? Yeah, it, it, all the, the only really, it really said was that using audio cues, you could navigate your way through a maze. And later on, the technology that they originally planned to use here was used over at the sound station, over at uh, the old Monster Sound Show at MGM. Now, finally, the, the, the one interesting thing that was mentioned, and, and talk about sort of being prophetic, is the electronic playground. And it, the description they have that, that I came upon was... You know, in the electronic playground, we can enjoy the thrills of skiing or riding the rapids in a kayak without the dangers. In these games, and in others called Magic Carpet, the whole body is used. We fly through the air or speed down a slope by shifting our body weight. And really, very much a precursor to virtual reality and then other type games that we see in arcades now, you know, where you're, you're actually using your full body, you know, to some extent like DDR, but, you know, a little bit more sophisticated, you know, riding the, the water bikes or whatever. Right, and, and we see some of that now in Disney Quest. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the changes that, that took place uh, in and around Communicore. Uh, it, like I said, it, it was closed in, in October of 1993 for the, the transition to becoming Interventions. In 1994, the Stargate became the electric umbrella. The Sunrise Terrace was divided into the Pasta Piazza, which is now closed, and the Fountain View Espresso and Bakery, where I think you should get your breakfast when you go to Epcot. Uh, Expo Robotics Center became part of uh, Club Cool. And like we said before, in 1999, the Centurium, the last really kind of remaining original part of Communicore, expanded and became Mouse Gear. And interestingly enough, one of the, to me, one of the short, very short-lived attractions that was a part of the initial wave of interventions, and the area still was somewhat open, not like the Road to Tomorrow incarnation now, do you remember the Imagineering Labs? Yeah, uh, we, we've totally forgot about that. That's right. That's right. I, I think I talked yeah. about it on an email that somebody had sent me, and I and I didn't mention it here. Yeah, that that in in very much that was that was once again in that area where the robotics show was, was it not? 
Yeah, I remember seeing the um, I remember seeing the signs for it, and, and I'll put a link up in the show notes to an earlier show when I put in the show notes some pictures that somebody had sent me who had actually worked on the Imagineering Labs. And the showcase of the Imagineering Labs, in fact, was a test-type system that eventually was the um, Aladdin uh, simulator attraction that is in Disney Quest. Yeah, and that's one of the things I, I really was jazzed up about seeing as a kid. You know, again, the combination of technology and video games and, and loving the Aladdin movie as well. Good. Yeah, what was really, really cool about um, the Imagineering Labs was it was very immersive. You went in and they, they tried to make it look like it was an actual working, you know, lab setting. And they had lots and lots of you know, sort of props, you know, audio animatronic pieces, things like that, hanging off the walls. It was, and it was very, once again, it was kind of employing the high ceilings of, of what we had described before of the building. And it just, it was very neat. And unfortunately, it just did not survive into the road to tomorrow. And it really, it was, it was sad because it felt like it was something that they were going to change out a lot. You know, they were showcasing the Aladdin Magic Carpet Simulator, but then it, you got the impression that, oh, they would do that, and then they would move on and show you something else that was in development. It really felt like you were getting a look behind the scenes of what was coming within the next few years. And you're right. It's too bad that it didn't make the cut when they switched over to Interventions. And we're going to talk a little bit just kind of as we synopsize Interventions Now versus Communicore, because... What Interventions is now is very different from what Communicore was, and we're hopefully kind of giving you a sense of that. We want to kind of give you a sense of the fact that this really was, you know, Disney's version or Epcot Center's version of Main Street USA. It had the town square. It showcased the technology. It was a place that people could gather to eat and look and interact and things like that. And it really, unlike Interventions now, it really brought together really almost all of the the sponsors of the surrounding pavilions under one roof. It really served to be a supplemental experience to your visit to Future World. It was meant to be part of the pavilions that you had just come from. So, for example, like I said, if you came out of Universe of Energy, sponsored by Exxon, you wanted to learn more about energy, you could go right next door to Communicore East, interact with the Energy Exchange exhibit. Um, it was just, it was done very, very well. And I think the timing of it was perfect because really it was at the beginning of you know, this generation's technology revolution. And it was a great way to, to introduce and educate people about computers from, from the decks that ran Epcot to the handheld devices that they showed and the touch screens and the voice recognition and even the internet. I mean, that big map of the United States really was showing people the technology that we take for granted today, which is the internet. And part of what I liked about it too, Jeff, which I think is different than today, and, and you made reference to it when you talk about Sega, was that the corporate advertising, and that's and that's what it was. It was meant to showcase the corporate technologies. It was much more subtle than what you currently have at Interventions. It was more tied to the attractions and the themes. And I think what you see now is something that's a little bit more blatant. It's a little more of an advertisement for Lenovo and, and for, you know, to use your example, Sega and Lutron and things like that. And I'm, that's not a complaint. It just it, it just is what it is. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the difference between what you were saying, a community and a trade show. Um, Interventions is very much a trade show. You're, you're going from exhibit to exhibit, each one very distinct, each one very branded to whatever sponsor is, is um, putting it on. And Communicore was much more subtle. It, it, you, you know, the, the, the corporate you know, sponsorships were there. You know, they weren't that hard to miss. But it was much more low-key and much more, as you said, it, was, it stood for Community Core, and it was that. You know, my story of the space shuttle, 
demonstrated how it became that in a particular moment in time. And you don't really have that, you know, interventions isn't conducive to that type of interaction. It's, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's kind of like a convention. It's like a trade show. And the thing I think aesthetically, the thing that bothers me the most was the loss of the wide open spaces. And some people say, well, it was kind of monochromatic. It was, it was kind of very sterile to a certain degree. And I don't think so. I think it, it flowed very well. And I think it was, it was beautiful, especially during the day. And actually even better at night, if you'd be on the second, I remember being on the mezzanine level and looking down at the fountain uh, with all the neon lights and just kind of the impression that it made on me uh, at, at a young age. And, and maybe when Interventions first opened, it wasn't as, as as maybe pronounced as it is now because they still were kind of focusing on future technologies and, and virtual reality and things like that. And now I, I walk through and it's dark and it's a maze and I'm, and I'm kind of just going from exhibit to exhibit and I don't have the same appreciation that I did when it was Communicore. Yeah, I've said it quite a few times in our discussion, and, you know, Epcot, one of the things I miss about it, you know, with, and it's really, it's based in this change from Communicore to Interventions, is, is again, the, the size and scope of the park. Um, whereas, you know, Animal Kingdom and MGM and Magic Kingdom rely very much on self-contained lands. You know, you when you're in Adventureland, they want you to feel like you're in Adventureland, you know. Epcot is just all about Epcot the whole, and you know when you stand, you know along the the shores of the seven of the lagoon World Showcase, World Showcase Lagoon, you you have this expanse, you have this you know sense of scope and size, and you did have that with Future World as well when when Communicore was wide open like that, and unfortunately now when you stand at the center you know of Epcot and you're standing there at the pin station. You don't get that feel like you used to, mm-hmm. and like I said, even in Avengers when it first opened, it, it wasn't as as kind of broken up the way it is now. I mean, there's you know in Avengers in, inside it is heavy black you know drapes and things like that covering up a lot of areas, and you kind of have to kind of wander your way through and follow that you know somewhat metaphorical road to tomorrow. But you know, and the things that, don't get me wrong, the the exhibits are great. You know, the the fire exhibit. Is a great way to educate kids. I took my daughter through it, and she knows what to do if there's a fire and things like that. Um, and maybe because I'm older, you know, I'm saying, well, why are kids sitting in here playing console video games? You know, this this is not what you're supposed to be doing in Epcot. And I know I kind of went off last week and talked about, you know, the technology in the parks and staring at the screens. Well, you know, when you walk through and you see that they're not, you know, do, looking at certain other things and they're sitting there up against these video consoles, you know, standing there for, for what seems like forever while their parents are waiting to kind of move along. I guess it's, it, I'm frustrated because I remember what Communicore used to be. But um, so, so that's it. That, that's our look back, whether it be geeky, whether it be somewhat nostalgic, whatever it was. Again, just trying to make you either remember what you may have, have seen back in the early 80s or, or late 80s, as the case may be, or if you hadn't had a chance to see Communicore and appreciate Communicore, see what it once was, see how it evolved, and hopefully next time you go, get a real good look at the buildings. Take a good look at the buildings from the inside and the outside. Look at the the distance between the back of the buildings and imagine those buildings being blown out and opened up and, and adding more things on and, and how different it looks now versus the way it looked back then. And uh, by all means, feel free to share your memories of Communicore or what you think about the piece. You can send us an email. You can send it to Lou at WDWRadio.com. You can call the voicemail or post uh, over in the forums. Jeff, 
from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. I highly suggest going and checking out what Jeff does there uh, all the time. It is it is definitely a must-go-to site. Jeff, thank you again for taking this look back uh, in celebration of Epcot's 25th. This was your idea to begin with, kind of uh, paying tribute to, to a park that obviously you and I and so many other people were very big pa- fans of. It's it's always a pleasure going on these uh, nostalgic tours with you, Lou. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right, bye. I mentioned last week that I had an announcement to make that would not only allow you to have some fun along with us over the course of a number of shows, but a way that you can actually interact with the show and do something good in the process. But before I continue, I want to introduce you to Eric Hollister, as he is the man who's behind what I think is a fun, inspiring, and wonderful idea. Eric, welcome to the WDW Radio Show. Thank you, Lou. Thank you for having me. Eric, you uh, you contacted me some time ago about not only a new website that you're about to launch called geomouse.com, but an idea that you had for something that's going to go on during the Walt Disney World, and I make sure I say this clearly, half marathon, as well as it's something that's going to benefit the uh, the Dream Team project. So, Eric, this is your baby, and, and I am exceptionally grateful for you to allowing me to be a part of it. But uh, why don't you tell everybody, you know, what your idea is and, and what we have planned for the coming months, uh, as well as about your new site as well. Sure. Well, again, Lou, thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Um, you know, I know I did contact you some time ago about this idea. Uh, like you and many of your listeners, a big-time fan of Disney, had the opportunity in 2004 and 2006 to live in Orlando. And as an annual pass holder, went my fair share of times. So, um but learned very quickly that uh, I was I could not hold a candle to some of the uh, knowledge and uh, trivia that you and some of your guests uh, have as part of uh, Walt Disney World. So, but the idea that uh, that I was playing with was you're the one actually running in the uh, Walt Disney World half marathon, uh, actually walking the walk, as they say. <laughs> running, and, uh, that's been running in air quotes for the time being. So. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, running, walking, uh, being dragged, whatever the case <laughs> is, uh, you know. But we wanted to kind of have, the thought was to kind of have some fun with this and uh, do some good along the way. And in true half marathon fashion, we wanted to be able to extend this from July 1st all the way up until the time that you actually do run in the marathon and basically create a series of challenges that listeners uh, can get involved with over the course of the next six and a half months. Is it? How's your training coming on that? Uh, I'm sorry, you broke up there just a little bit. Would you, well, <clears throat> so let's move on to the challenges themselves. <laughs> my, my, I am unfortunately a victim of, of just time, and I know that's no excuse. And I, I've been setting my alarm for 6 o'clock every morning. The actual running that takes place thereafter sometimes is, is not where I'd want to be. But I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Well, like I said, you're, you're taking it a little bit farther than I am. I'll be sitting and watching either from the sidelines or... Uh, we're hearing about it later on one of your podcasts. So, but the idea that, uh, like I said, it involves a series of challenges. Uh, each week, listeners, or every two weeks or so, listeners will have an opportunity to hear what the particular challenge is. It may range from anywhere uh, from trivia type of knowledge, trivia type of contests, uh, you know, also involves some friends of the show uh, with some segments or expertise that, you know, your listeners know them for. 
and allow them not only to win some fabulous prizes along the way, but allow them also to name mile markers for each of the 13 miles that you uh, run in the half marathon. So the way the contest will work, uh, at least the way we're proposing that it will work, and uh, we'll see where it goes from here, is that beginning on July 1st, uh, we will introduce the first in the challenge series. And basically, like I said, it'll be a series of uh, trivia questions or other items. But listeners will have the opportunity to submit answers on, a web or on an email that we provide them. And all correct submissions that are entered by a specified date will go into a pool, and we will randomly select a winner from each uh, one of those challenges. And the winner, like I said, will receive some prizes that we will announce the week leading up to the challenge. Uh, they'll also have the opportunity to name that particular mile marker, and this is where we're looking for them to get creative. You know, they can name it Mickey's or Joe Smith's Mickey Mile. They can name it uh, Ollie's Oasis Spot, whatever they want to name it. This is an opportunity for them to kind of have some fun with it. And we will, on geomouse.com, uh, we will post not only the winner, but we'll post their name of their uh, mile marker. So that way they can go on and uh, kind of see their victory along the way. And they will also receive a certificate of dedication, which we will provide them, that will uh, basically announce, hey, this is your particular spot in the, in the half marathon mile marker. Uh, and finally, if that is not all, Geomouse will donate $100 uh, to the Dream Team Project for each one of these challenges leading up to the half marathon. So, like I said, it's an opportunity to have some fun. It's an opportunity to raise some money for a great cause. And one final added bonus, if, is if that's not enough, at the end of the marathon, half marathon, assuming that you're still breathing, <laughs> we will take all 13 winners uh, throughout the course of the challenge and put them into one final drawing for a grand prize, which we'll announce later on in the uh, later on down the road as we get closer to the half marathon. Yeah, you know, I, I was kind of, I was really taken back when I read your email because not only did I just think it was a fascinating idea, but the generosity that you came forth with, um, you know, offering to donate personally from yourself $100 per mile, um, you know, for the Mile Marker Challenge is in addition to prizes that you're going to help contribute along the way as well. Um, I, I was really touched by, by what you did. And, and again, I appreciate you including me. And like you said, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for us. Um, this might be a little bit more of a motivating factor to get me up at 530 <laughs> instead of six. Um, but it's a great way for people to participate, to help the cause. They, Like you said, they also are going to win prizes and have a chance to win the as yet unnamed grand prize at, at the very end of all this. Absolutely. And if it's any consolation, Lou, what I'll do is I'll set my alarm for 5.30 each morning and I'll make sure I hit the snooze bar. Uh, just so that way I can say I was up at roughly the time that Lou Mangello was <laughs> while he's training for his, uh, his marathon or half marathon. But, yeah, you know, going back to the challenges, each week it's going to be something new and unique. Uh, you know, if you're not a Disney trivia expert, uh, you know, never fear. There's another challenge coming up down the road. It may be something that... Uh, you feel like you're more of an expert in or something that you can possibly contribute a winning answer to. And, you know, it's going to be fun. We look forward to having some guests on the show or guests of your show uh, be a big part of this and help us out along the way in terms of contributing challenge ideas and, uh, you know, other ideas that we may come up with. 
Yeah, this, this is definitely be a lot of fun. We talked a little bit offline about some of the things we had planned along the way. And like you said, we're going to get some other friends of the show involved. So it's not just going to be all trivia questions. There's going to be all different kind of things that you can do for a chance to win and obviously you know a chance to help out. And you don't have to be going to the marathon at all. You don't have to do anything other than just uh, you know listen to the show and, and participate. But uh, Eric, we also we mentioned your site because we're going to do this uh, in conjunction with both of our sites. Your site hasn't launched yet. It's geomouse.com. That's geomouse.com. Tell everybody what Geomouse is going to be when you when you launch it. Well, Geomouse. Uh, when I first came up with the idea, when I after I left Orlando, uh, you know, I realized real quickly how much I took Disney for granted. And I still wanted to be, still wanted, if that's even possible, right? (laughs) I still wanted to be very much involved. And that's when I learned just how, you know, big this Disney community network really is and just how much fun it is to uh, kind of talk to people back and forth just about Disney and, you know, their experiences. But the one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to, you know, try to copy what somebody else was doing. And I didn't want anyone to feel like I was trying to move in on their turf of expertise. So I kind of went back to what Disney is most known for, um, you know, whether it's the animation, whether it's the movies or the, or the parks. And that, that's the idea of, of the story and how the, the story gets incorporated in just, ev- just about everything that Disney does. And I've always been fascinated, no matter how many times I've gone or the number of people I've talked to, just all the vacation stories and the unique magical moments and different types of things that cast members provide for um, for the guests you know it just it really does amaze me and I thought you know how great would it be to you know have a site that could feature all these different stories encourage people to come on tell us what happened provide us you know photos family photos vacation photos whatever the case may be of your Disney experience whether it's Walt Disney World uh, Disney Cruise Line Disneyland or Disney overseas you know, and really allow this, com- you know, the community to continue on with, uh, you know, the interaction that they've already got. So hopefully, uh, hopefully the idea uh, <laughs> will hold some weight to it, and uh, we will be up and running by August 1st. But in the meantime, we're definitely going to have something up for uh, each challenge every week in conjunction with both uh, my site and wdwradio.com and disneyworldtrivia.com. So, you know, I definitely want to thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. Uh, like I said, it should be fun. And at the very least, if we, you know, you had mentioned to me offline, if you drop dead at mile two, do we have a backup plan? <laughs> and it, it's funny because I think Jeff Pepper did a segment a couple of weeks ago on the Haunted Mansion tombstones. And funny enough, there just happened to be 13. So <laughs> there's 13 miles and a half marathon, 13 tombstones. Hopefully it won't come to that, but uh, yeah. You know, and did you notice he also posted a picture of my, of a tombstone for me in in the forums under the in, in the WW Radio forums? So that that uh, hopefully that's not foreshadowing for what's to come. But if so, um, it was all for a good cause. You know, we're all rallying around a good cause. And if I die in the process, <laughs> well, then so be it. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I, I don't know what we can come up with that will rhyme. Well, here lies Lou. He was trying to have some fun, but unfortunately kick the bucket on his half marathon run or I don't know. So. Just, you know, here lies Lou, blame Mike Scopa. That it's because hey, it's, there you go. It's all if his Lou, fault. Just so your listeners know, if Lou something happens to Lou, it's all somebody else's fault. 
So it's uh, Mike Scopa's fault, Matt, Hot- Matt Hotchberg. I don't know any of these guys, so I'm sure that I'll get some hate mail once the site launches. <laughs> if but, I drop dead, Mike Scopa has to match your donation, dollar for dollar. <laughs> tri- how about triple? There we go. So that will encourage him to uh, help you train properly. Exactly. So, well, he's actually he's been actually been very helpful and very encouraging along the way. If he could just come up and get me out of bed, I'd, I'd be set. But um, right. again, Eric, we're going to start this. We wanted to announce this now, but we are going to start this July first. That's going to be the first contest. It's going to run for thirteen weeks. So basically, the contest will run for two weeks, and then we'll pick the winner, and then we'll start a new contest and keep going on. And the contest will change. Uh, the prizes will also change. We're going to have a variety of different prizes. Uh, you know that we're going to kind of come up with and, and different themed packages and things like that. Don't forget, you're also going to get your certificate. Um, you're also going to be able to get to name your marker. So even after you do win, you're going to have an opportunity to be even more creative and really kind of rally around what we're doing here. And again, let's all remember that it's for a good cause. It's for the Dream Team Project uh, to benefit the, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Um, the Starlight Starbright no longer grants wishes, so we're now going to be uh, pooling our resources and, and uh, sending those over to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, uh, which, which obviously has the same kind of cause to help send uh, seriously ill children to Walt Disney World. So, uh, Eric, I, I am really looking forward to this. I, I want to thank you again for contacting me. We're going to put uh, information up in the show notes page. I also want you to head on over to geomouse.com. Look for that site to launch soon. And uh, look for the first challenge to start next week. Ready, set, go. All right, this is going to be a lot of fun. Eric, thank you again. Not a problem, Lou. Thank you again for having me. I've always said that I wanted this show to be interactive and allow you, the listener, to be involved. So for this week's Hidden Treasures of Walt Disney World segment, I want to welcome in listener Tim Sampson. You may remember that name from his R&R Walt Disney World segment that he sent in a few weeks back. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Lou. It's really a pleasure to be on this week. Looking forward to it. Well, I, would be, I thought it would be great to have you on again. I think you did a great job on that segment. And thought we could do something a little bit interactive. And when we started talking about another idea for an R&R segment, we really found ourselves instead talking about some of the true hidden treasures of Walt Disney World. And there was one that we agreed upon right away. It's a shop that's overlooked by guests, and I think most people walk by without ever entering it. And they miss the wonderful details, as well as the opportunity for a very unique, memorable experience at Walt Disney World. And we're talking about the Harmony Barbershop on Main Street, USA. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of people, like you said, they don't realize it's there. And I think a lot of people don't realize even how long it's been there. Sure. Well, it, well, given a little history of it, actually, there was the, the, the original Harmony Barbershop did open in 1971, but it wasn't located where it is now. And, you know, it's now located between the car barn and the Emporium on the west side of Town Square. Originally, the Harmony Barbershop was located on West Center Street, which is kind of the, the middle of the block on Main Street, USA. That was later filled in by the Emporium's expansion in 2001. Uh, when it overtook the Harmony Barbershop, there was also the uh, facades for the livery stable, the cyclery, and the la- uh, laundry facility, the Chinese laundry. Exactly, yeah. You know, I haven't been able to find out exactly the date on that because some reference material says 71 and others say the shop opened in 75. 
So I, I'm not really totally 100% sure on what year it opened. I'm gonna have to pull out some of my uh, some of my early maps and see. I I, ha I know I actually have a map on my wall from '73, and I'm looking up at it now, and it does say the Harmony Barbershop is there. So. Oh, okay. So it must have been '71. I have to look. My I, I actually went in November of '71. That was the first time my parents took me. I was three at the time, so obviously I have very many memories. But I'll have to ask them and see if uh, if that's when I when and where I got my first haircut. Okay. Well, I know a lot of people were upset when it was moved, and they say that the facade really changed a lot, and, and they liked the old facade better on West Center Street. Uh, and I think possibly that's true, but in either location, I think it was probably overlooked a lot by people, just simply because it was a small storefront and kind of an out-of-the-way place, almost like it is now. A lot of people don't even realize it's there. Sure, and if they do see it, they might just think, like you said, that it's just a facade. And, well, you know, there's not really a barbershop on Main Street, USA, but but there is, and, and it's a working, it's a real working barbershop, you know, almost kind of out of, if you look at it very quickly when you go inside, it almost looks like it came right out of like a Norman Rockwell painting because of, of how well it's themed in keeping with everything else on Main Street. Absolutely. And, you know, there's some really neat stuff in there. Uh, the furniture in there is, is really beautiful. Some of the... Uh, the, the sink area where, that they have in the corner with very dark hardwood cabinetry. They have a lot of the old style hair tonics and talcum powders and things on those shelves. And then uh, there's an old shoe shine chair in there, which mm -hmm. actually has a hidden Mickey in it. Don't know if anyone's noticed that. And, uh, and then there's some real antiques in there. You, I'm sure you've noticed the uh, cash register sure. dates from 1912. And they only just last year actually got the uh, card swipe machines in there that you could charge a haircut to a credit card or back to your room. Right. Before, before right. that, it was always cash only. <laughs> well, and, and you know, it, 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 I guess part of it was try not to, to ruin the theming of it because it is so well themed. Exactly. Yeah. And they, they have that old Western Electric phone box on the wall that they still use to make phone calls. Yeah, and there's a potbelly stove in there. I mean, even some of the little things, you know, I, I'm sure, unless you're a total geek like me or maybe you or Jeff Pepper, <laughs> you're not looking at things like the wallpaper, you know, but it's got that very, you know, Victorian, turn-of-the-century era kind of pinstriped wallpaper and, and, you know, the dark carved wood cabinetry. There's the hat rack in there is, is authentic antique. It, it's 100 years old. So uh, everything is truly vintage and really, really, you know, either uh, authentic or reproduced very, very well. Yeah, absolutely. You, you walk in and, and you think you're in in a show set. And that's exactly as we know. It's on stage for Walt Disney World and it's uh, kept in really good condition. It looks very authentic. Well, and the reason, you know, again, the reason part of the reason why it's a hidden treasure is because... I think people think it is maybe a facade or it is a show set because there are a lot of the buildings in and around Walt Disney World, especially look at Frontierland, how many of the facades, you know, say that they're something and they really aren't. But this is a, is a working uh, a barbershop and it's open usually from about nine to five, seven days a week. They don't take appointments, but you can walk in. Kids and adults can get a haircut there. It's $17 for adults, 14 for children 12 and under. They also have things like colored hair gel for 5 bucks. You can get a beard and mustache trim, just like the old days, for $10. But I think one of the real, real, real hidden treasures of this hidden treasures is taking your child there to get their first haircut. Um, it, it's a very special kind of thing. I've done it for my children. I've seen other people take their kids there. Um, they really kind of go over the top 
to make it a special experience. You also get a free set of my first haircut uh, set of Mickey Mouse ears. It's only $14. You also get a nice little certificate. They give you a lock of the child's hair. And if you're concerned about your kid getting up in the barber chair, they do an incredible job, Tim, of really making your child feel at ease. They have toys. They have stickers. They have all kinds of stuff. I'm going to try and put some pictures up of my son's first haircut when he was there because it was a lot of fun. Absolutely. I've watched a lot of children get their first haircut in there. And you know what's great is sometimes I even feel a little uneasy because I'm watching this little kid getting his first haircut or her first haircut. And I'm like, you know, and here I am, this big guy in the in the chair getting a haircut. And you know what? They treat me just as well as they treat the child because they know we're all there to enjoy ourselves and to, to do something unique. And the cast members, as you've mentioned so many times they're really one of the seven wonders as you've said and and they really are very good there in the harmony barber shop well, i've it, been in many times and and michael uh, is my barber when i'm in main street usa it's so funny you mentioned michael's name because i was going to mention him specifically he's been there for just about 10 years now and he was there he cut my son's hair he cut my daughter's hair uh he used to own his own salon in chicago and came here and he really I mean, he is part of the cast because he performs while he's there. He he buys into it, and he really gives you the feeling like you are an old-time thing, and he's, he's wonderful with the kids as well as the adults, really, really making it something a lot of... Even if you don't need a haircut, you should just go get your haircut there. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because he's just like your own hometown barber. I go in there, he remembers me, we talk about uh, our cars because he's got a convertible and my wife's got a convertible and we chat about that stuff and, and he remembers us and I'm, I, I'm just always amazed when I go in there that I can walk in there every six months or every year and he still remembers who I am and what we drive and you know where we live so it's really uh, an amazing experience every time yeah exceptional and it, it, I'm happy that you mentioned the fact that they remember you because they do about 400 guest haircuts per week and very quickly trying to do the math that's about 60 haircuts per day for there's usually two sometimes three cast members in there they many of whom have been there for a long time but again they do Make it a very personal experience and something above and beyond just, you know, getting your hair. You know, look, you can go to the salon at the Contemporary or the Grand Floridian and get your hair cut. But to get a cut right. at the Harmony Barbershop on Main Street with the barber pole and the antiques is really something a lot of fun. Again, you can just walk up anytime. You can't make an appointment. So check in, you know, early in the day so you don't have to worry about waiting. But um, And by the way, it's not just guests. He, they also cut a lot of cast member hair in there. Oh, yeah. I, I have been in there many times, and I've heard some very interesting conversations <laughs> uh, from a variety of cast members, from um, parade cast members, uh, actually face cast, to uh, security, under undercover security. I've been in there while they've come in and gotten haircuts. So uh, it's a great place to hang out, and it's air-conditioned. True. <laughs> <laughs> Off the beaten path, again, the Harmony Barbershop on Main Street, USA, truly one of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures. I'll put some more information about it up in the show notes as well as some pictures. Tim Sampson, I want to thank you for coming on and, and talking about something that obviously we, we both enjoy very much. And uh, I think I'm going to have to hit the Harmony Barbershop and, and try and hold off on getting a haircut until next time I head on down. Absolutely. I always time it just right for that haircut. Hey, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you, Tim.
Thank you again for tuning in this week, and I hope you enjoyed the show. I want to thank Jeff Pepper, as well as Tim Sampson, for coming on the show. And a very big welcome and thanks to Eric Holster for his work on the WDW Radio Show Marathon Challenge. Look for the first contest to begin next week. Of course, thanks to you for coming back and tuning in once again, as well as for continuing to interact with and supporting the show. I should mention that this week I received dozens of emails from listeners who let me know that the show was featured on Apple's iTunes Podcast Spotlight newsletter, along with shows from National Geographic and the Museum of Modern Art. I want to thank you not only for the emails, but really that mention was thanks to all of you for your support of the show. It was a really nice surprise, and I sincerely appreciate you all listening each and every week. Speaking of your emails, time was very tight this week, and I'm sorry I did not want to rush through them, so I didn't get to them, but I promise to have a full email segment again on next week's show. Also, speaking of contests, our first Where in the World Have You Seen This Contest ends Sunday night, the night the show is coming out at 11.59, but the show is going live before then, so I will wait until after midnight to tally the entries this week and announce the winner on next week's show. If you want to get in last minute and see the photos, you can visit the WDW Radio Show forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Don't forget to visit the WDWRadio.com website for show notes, photos, links to past shows, other helpful resources, and more. Also be sure to visit the WDW Radio merchandise shop for our new t-shirts. If you are planning a Disney vacation, please be sure to visit our friends over at The Magic for Less Travel. There, they can offer you a free, no-obligation quote for any Disney vacation. They offer outstanding, free service, ongoing promotions, and more. You can find a link to the Magic for Less Travel over at the WDWRadio.com website. On upcoming shows, we have more in our Epcot Retrospective series, more Disney scene investigations, a couple of very special interviews, more trivia, new contest, the additional spots in the Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World, a ton of your listener feedback to get to, and more. I want to say hello to a couple other friends of the show. This is Doug from the Geek Acres podcast. You can visit him at geekacres.com. Also, be sure to check out Jonathan Dichter. He is the co-host now of the All About the Mouse podcast with Brian Ripper. I'm actually on the show with Brian this week talking about the Adventures Club. So you should go over and check that out. Again, that's allaboutthemouse.com. Remember, you can also email me anytime with your questions, comments, suggestions. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like at lou at wdwradio.com. Also, please come by the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Talk with other listeners and readers about the show. It's fun. It's free. I'd love to have you come by. We are still the happiest forums on Earth. Like I said, we just passed our 20,000 member mark. We still are a very close, friendly, and welcoming community. So I invite you to come by. So again, thank you for tuning in this week. Please help spread the word on other communities and to your friends and families. Have a great week. See ya! Hi, Lou. This is your pal Mike down here in sunny Florida, listening to your uh, latest podcast and uh, heard talking about Humphrey the Bear at Wilderness Lodge. And I wanted to point out something that you didn't touch on. Uh, If you've ever taken a Wishes cruise and you were lucky enough to have your boat depart from Wilderness Lodge, then there's a good chance that your driver may have pointed out that Humphrey's face is actually hidden in the back of the lodge overlooking the lake. Now it has to be after sunset and you have to know exactly where to look but if you look up over the pool just to the left of where the geyser is you will notice that there are two windows triangular shaped at the top of the building and then there is two spotlights sort of like in the center below them that form his nose. 
so you have his eyes and his nose looking out over the lake. Really does look like it. You have to look just the right way. But next time you're out on the lake, ask somebody to point it out to you. Keep up the great work on the show, Lou. We're always listening. Bye. Hi, Lou. This is Paul Tully. I'm, uh, well, not writing, but I'm talking from Del Rio. Um, I was just want to make a comment about last week's show, show n- number 19, uh, dealing with the various online information while in the parks. Um, like you, I am a huge tech geek. I love my gadgets. I got my little PSP that I take on the plane with. I take my iPod with me as well. But you know what? I leave all that stuff at home whenever I go to Disney. And when I, the, the thing is, is I generally travel to Disney alone. I'm just, I'm just a single guy. But what happens is, you know, when I, when I come back from my trips, you know, people are constantly asking me, you went to Disney by yourself? I mean, how can you stand that? Well, here's the thing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not alone when I'm there. You know, I've, I've, you've got millions of people that are out there every single day that you can strike up a conversation with, and you've already got something in common right there, something about Disney. You can talk about the rides. You can talk about, you know, where you've been uh, and stuff like that. And if you put, you know, electronics that are, you know, these handheld electronics in your hand already, you, you take away that, that human aspect uh, that I think, you know, Disney really wanted to uh, – encourage and so although although the uh, online information sounds like it would be a, a really neat idea you know on paper i think it would definitely take a little bit of the human aspect away uh which is one of the most magical things that that disney has to offer so anyway that's my take on it the, ironically we will see you online i'm data tully d-a-t-a-t-u-l-l-y keep up the good work hey lou it's jeff from uh Brick, New jersey uh long time listener love the show uh look forward to it every week we had somebody write in this week from uh, Staten Island, and unfortunately I can't remember the gentleman's name, uh, wondering about when was the time to take his kid to the park. Uh, I believe he said his child was one and a half. Uh, my son's now three and a half and has been down to the park three times already. Uh, the first time he was there, he was actually only six months old. Uh, and the difference in him after the first trip was amazing. He, it was like it opened his eyes. But he, it was a realization that there was a lot more stuff out there than what he could have realized. Uh, and every time he's been back, it's been uh, a bigger eye-opener and a bigger pleasure to spend the time down there and watch him just take it all in and enjoy it. Uh, so as, as you are, uh, I am a huge proponent of uh, getting the kids to the parks as early as you can. Don't worry about the fact that they may only be six months or a year old or a year and a half because they're going to get it. They're going to understand it. They're going to enjoy it. And more importantly, you're going to have a blast watching them enjoy it. So go on down, enjoy it, and uh, Lou, keep up the great work, and uh, can't wait to hear next week's show. Talk to you again soon. Bye. Hello, Newell.